Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that's willing to go where other Buddhist podcasts fear to tread. Coming to you from Trieste, Italy and Bath, England, each episode we discuss topical issues concerning Western Buddhism with a bit of banter and occasional guests. You can join in the fun at our dedicated Facebook page and Twitter feed. Download episodes from SoundCloud and MixCloud. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Today's episode will be tackling the subject of enlightenment. Before we continue, though, we should thank our new sponsors. The IBP has two generous new sponsors this, uh, this episode, dharma to go and the Enlightenment Corporation. Please do visit their websites and check out the great work they're doing in spreading the Buddha love. Now, what are some of the questions that will guide today's episode? Well, what is it? Who's got it? Can it be understood, formulated in a way that could liberate the masses as a form of human practice? Why bother? Is it the shiznit? How would a secular humanist outlook as the basis for reconfiguring it look? And what formal forms might it take? Well, Stuart, are you ready for today's show? Certainly am. Let's start by coming out of the closet, Stuart. Now, we're both fully enlightened, right? That's absolutely right, we are. I think you're ahead of me, though, Stuart. I've just reached level six, operating Thetan, whereas you have gone clear already. Uh, no, that's uh, Scientology, Matthew. Oh, oh shit, you're right. Uh, sorry, Imperfect Scientology is now on Thursdays. Um... Hi there. Have you ever wanted an authentic Buddhist Lama for your home or office? Well, look no further. Dharma to go, the world's leading supplier of authentic Buddhist paraphernalia, is offering homestay llamas at a 20% discount for listeners of the IBP with free postage and packaging to Europe and Canada. Why travel for hours to get the latest empowerments and those profound teachings you've been gagging for when you can have a stay-at-home llama all to yourself? Visit Dharma to go and check out our other fantastic offers solar-powered prayer wheels, or even our specially designed, limited edition Apple logo prayer beads. When you know you deserve the very best in Dharma supplies, visit Dharma to go 
and enter the code word ISUCK. Dharma to go. Quality ensured. Woohoo! I'm really happy that we have finally got round to tackling this subject, Stuart. It's going to be a good one, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. It's such a, a juicy topic, uh, so rich, so full of fantasy, uh, wishful thinking, hero worship, and a lot of other stuff too, right? One hope I would have, though, for today's show would be to provide a sort of public service in which we dismantle some of the collective assumptions that surround the whole imaginative wonder that is Buddhist enlightenment, spiritual enlightenment for that matter, and the phenomena that such things might be pointing to. Before we do, I think we have to acknowledge how delicate today's topic is, though, Stuart. I'd like to directly address any UK or US university students and Buddhists in general who may be feeling oversensitive and a little concerned. I think we should provide a trigger warning here, Stuart, because we might just offend a few people. So for those who aren't aware of what trigger warnings are, I'll share a definition from the always fantastic Urban Dictionary, that great source of information on popular culture and innovative language use. Now, here it is, Stuart. Trigger warning, a phrase posted at the beginning of various posts, articles, blogs, or in this case, podcasts, its purpose is to warn weak-minded people who are easily offended that they may find what is being posted offensive in some way due to its content, causing them to overreact or otherwise start acting like a dipshit. We may disrespect. <laughs> can I say that? Can I say that on the podcast? Yeah, you can say dipshit on the podcast, although that might upset a few people, but we're putting the trigger warning in so they, they really shouldn't get upset, should they? Yeah, because I think the trigger warning basically disarms their hypersensitivity, right? right it's, it takes the uh it takes the sensitivity out of the out of the topic as long as you say trigger warning okay so we've done our public service well anyway we will probably upset a few people today we might offend a few that's not our intention though is it Stuart but we are going to be a little bit rebellious and uh, hopefully break a fair few taboos and say something a little bit different are you ready absolutely go for it We've got all our silliness well at least most of it out of the way uh, we are going to state a few premises at the outset being such a rich topic, just so people know where we're coming from and the sort of direction we're going to head in. Uh, it's also the case that we try to present this material in an intelligent, you know, thinking way into an intelligent thinking Buddhist or ex-Buddhist audience. But many of the points we raise could warrant an entire podcast episode and uh, would need drawn out discussion, perhaps from academics. And certainly some of our limitations will play out today. Uh, we remind you all once again, we're not academics. Uh, it is a podcast. So bear with the necessary generalizations. We've got a, a map made up though and we're going to follow it and do our best to be coherent. Here are some of the ideas we're going to be following. Enlightenment and awakening do not exist. Okay, let me qualify that. We're going to say that they're human phenomena and experiencing exists and we can talk about those things. That's the first one. So number two, naturally, is there is human phenomena that is worth discussing here and it is concerned with human liberation and tangible freedoms. And any intangible freedoms might be best understood as of secondary importance. Three, uh, such tangible freedoms are of value and personally can be of immense value. Uh, four, awakening, liberation, existential freedom likely have very little value to wider society and may even be viewed with suspicion, if not ignored, by most folks. Number five. Buddhism can provide a number of tools, both practical and ideational, that can bring about major change for an individual, but Buddhism is insufficient on the whole in producing such change in the short term. 
it seems to be better at helping with the management of such pro-positive human experiences, well-being, happiness and relaxation. Freedoms and liberation from the selfing process requires dramatic, often violent change. Society tends to shun such excess, as do most Buddhist groups. Number seven, peak experiences are relatively easy to come by, but they typically differ from radical change or break from identification with an enduring self. Uh, most folks seem to confuse the two, many perhaps due to an excessive focus on positivity and the cult of the self. Number eight, enlightenment is inevitably a disappointment, but the sorts of freedoms or spaciousness of being that can come about as a consequence of seeking it are extremely valuable and could be translated into ideological norms and human praxis. Wow. Number nine, Buddhisms have a rich array of obstacles that make articulating such a concept as enlightenment inherently problematic. Number 10, we've got 15 in total, so do bear with us. Number 10, Buddhism's goal, the end of suffering, is only partially possible. The body is matter and the mind is inseparable from our embodied finite nature. Any form of total complete freedom is wishful thinking and intimately tied to the idea of escape. There is no escape. Number 11, a great deal of what passes for discussion on this topic is wishful thinking, fantasy, or both. The most interesting discussion worth having is what a human, what is human, I should say rather, and what remains as the selfing narrative is addressed and deconstructed. Number 12, any form of awakening or liberation is inseparable from the body and the physical world we inhabit so that there are no supernatural powers. Number 13, enlightenment and awakening are inher inherently political. Recognition within a tradition, the rules governing claims, possibility, impossibility of attainment, individuals claiming or refusing to claim, the rules enforced by followers or hierarchies concerning what is allowed, morally right or wrong, to do so all come into play and have limited our ability in the West to look at this rationally and creatively. 14, the penultimate one. The nature of the discussion is itself problematic and flawed due to its abstraction and loaded symbology and value. It is culturally bogged down by masses of hearsay and masses of Trump-level bullshit. And finally, number 15, the language we use to discuss enlightenment, including this word, and its result is itself flawed and based on subject-object dualism, a more interesting model of liberation or awakening could be based on a process relational ecological ontology. And that's about as technical as I'm going to get, Stuart. That's quite a lot of preamble, but necessary. So how are you feeling about all this? And does any of this jump out at you? Feeling pretty good about this. I like the, the list and it's not our usual format to reel off such a list. So listeners, thank you very much for listening to Matthew Spiel there. I can tell from you going through that, Matthew, that there's a lot of material there that you're potentially bringing from the table from the post-traditional work at posttraditionalbuddhism.com that, that you've done, as well as additional thinking around this on getting specific and pointing to of being exact in your um, in your language, of being exact in what we're going to be discussing and what we're going to be looking at today. Now, you've got 15 good points there, and two of them... I'm, sh I'm pretty sure we won't be able to discuss all 15 in depth, but two of them do jump out at me. One of them, number six, freedoms and liberation from the selfing process requires dramatic, often violent change, and that society tends to shun such excesses as do most Buddhist groups. So that one jumps out at me. And at number seven, 
Peak experiences are relatively easy to come by, but they typically differ from radical change or break from identification with an enduring self. And most folks confuse the two. So that would be the difference between, for example, sitting for 12 hours and getting some kind of breakthrough experience or the long hard work of maybe a lifetime of doing this kind of stuff. Um, many, many due to an excessive focus on positivity and the cult of the self. So that would, again, would, would limit the depth or the extent or the longevity of such a practice, tending to look at kind of being a sticker that you put on or a band-aid. Those are the two that look, that jump out at me. And the, and of course, number 10, there is no escape. Those are the, those are the, th- <laughs> those are, those are the, the couple of them or a few of them that jump out at me. The theme of escape is is rife um, in all spiritual circles, right? We are going to take a post-traditional approach, so thank you for mentioning that and for plugging my website. I will uh, pay you the fee in due course. Sure. We're transparent here. We don't hide anything. I mean, if we're post-traditional, what does that mean? Well, we're not going to rely on Buddhism's sort of internal stories uh, to limit or define what we have to say uh, today. And as we mentioned in a couple of those points, Stuart, we're going to view any form of enlightenment as human phenomena. And we're actually we're viewing all Buddhism as human phenomena and therefore as limited, as finite and therefore imperfect, rather like our podcast. Well, perhaps not that imperfect, but you get my drift. What's interesting for me, Stuart, is when you start to reflect on all this and you, you basically take all of this phenomena as human, then the first step is that we don't have to uh, put figures from Buddhist traditions, teachings and practices up on pedestals. We don't have to rely so much on what are well, often beautiful, poetic, but extremely abstract descriptions of progress and change and look at what is human and shared, uh, what can be explored, worked with, reworked and, dare I say, <coughs> improved upon. Just imagine the sacralist Stuart improve on Geshe, Tolku, Lama, Yama's model. Well, why not? I'm sure that someone is shaking in their boots or grave right now. <laughs> That's our first, our first taboo broken. We're going to improve on what they did. We're going to, right now. Right now, we're going to do that right now. <laughs> yeah, feeling the pressure. Feel the burn. Okay, <laughs> improve. We've been using the word enlightenment, and uh, obviously that word is problematic. There are many forms of Buddhism, so Buddhisms, and therefore there are many articulations of this thing called enlightenment and different terminology to go along with it. A lot of this, a lot of the sort of jargon that's used really comes from other religious and spiritual traditions too, right? You know, that can cause an added element of confusion. There are many, many concepts that swirl around this sort of token or this, but we are going to primarily draw on Buddhism and try not to drift too far off into Neo-Advaita land or, or something else. We also want to leave aside hearsay, competitiveness and posturing and not continue with this whole idea of abstraction, which tends to always look for the best, the highest, the most extreme. Um, We also want to leave aside talk of he's enlightened or she's enlightened. He denies it, but all his students say it's true, so it must be. This leads us to the first real problem that we have to get over, Stuart, and that is perfection. The different traditions of Buddhism describe these states and achievements and teachers often in terms of perfection. I think that's inherently problematic and it goes against the attempt to articulate something that's human and shareable. To reiterate, we're only going to discuss what's human and humans being imperfect are finite creatures. So whatever might be achieved by a human being, they're always doing that embedded in a physical landscape and inhabiting a sort of earthly plane. These are both imperfect and succumb to decay and change, of course. So if we want to mention one Buddhist story, you know, we could mention the Buddha if we care to and talk about the fact that he seemed to be experiencing pain and grew old and his body eventually died. I'm bringing a number of presuppositions to the table and you're talking very clearly on on our human capacities. 
one of the things I, I see quite strongly within, within daily life and also within Buddhist and other types of practice is that our innate human capacities are mostly unexplored or unacknowledged. Secondly, humans are fundamentally animals that are conditioned to think or believe that they are mostly their logical or their rational lying brains, or at the very worst, that it's all that they are or there's no scope for them to be a dynamic human being. That they are what they think and that they're stuck within that. And I know that's not true, Matthew, and I'm pretty sure that, that our listeners also are clued into that as well. Naturally, we have access to old states, as you pointed out to, and deep transformational capacities. There's a potential that's because of our inherent evolutionary flexibility, the dynamic capabilities that we hold as human beings. We're subject to learning trances and body-centric flow states that are not the sole domain of meditation. For me, it's really important to point out that meditation is, although key, it's not the only doorway into this, is it? It's not the only way of accessing this. For example, I've experienced some really powerful flow states when snowboarding, when doing martial arts, and clearly this isn't just limited to to those domains. I think it's that applies to a lot of human endeavors when people get focused and can flow with where they're going. I see a barrier to being able to even get into that or be able to look at that or even to be able to go further with what Matthew's saying with really going into what awakening is, is the addressing of societal programming of what could be called firewalls that are established at behavioral levels of the brain, the body, and the being. So some examples of that could be factory farmed schools and disavowing disowning the body again going back to just that rational factor that human beings are the focus on the solely on the intellectual capabilities and capacities of the human being with radical exclusion of our emotional capabilities feeling qualities and the tones that go within that landscape and I see this as plugging into, and of course we're not going to go down this road because this isn't the focus of the podcast, rampant consumerism plus demonization and exploitation of the reptile brain to fill that void. It seems to be that there's a mainstream focus to just kind of get locked into a certain certain states, into a certain focus, and I don't know, tune out anything that's at the periphery. And so I see awakening as a way of kind of unplugging and stepping back from that and kind of embracing the, the full tapestry or fabric of what we are as human beings, Matthew. So I just wanted to put that in there rather than just getting really focused in on what awakening is and getting really specific with that, which of course we're going to do, but, you know, there we go. Uh, you changed the word already. You said awakening, not enlightenment. I, so did, why don't I, we... did I jump ahead? Yeah, that's fine. No, that's great. Yeah, cool. So why don't we talk about language? Let's start with the obvious target. So, I mean, the word enlightenment is obviously problematic. Uh, and in fact, it's, um, it's often been pointed out that it's a poor translation of some of the terms that have been used by different traditions or different forms of Buddhism. I actually think the word enlightenment being so abstract is detrimental to meaningful discussion on this topic and the unpacking of the phenomenon. Awakening could work, although that's already quite an abstract term too. But if we're going to take it as a token that represents this phenomenon, awakening is probably better than enlightenment. Although I think we can still do better and we'll see how's, how we do as we go on. I'd like to talk about perhaps more tangible forms of freedom because, uh, again, they can be defined. And one of the major issues with perfection and the terminology that surrounds that is it tends to place it as an abstract. It, it can be interpreted according to anybody's ideas, traditions, or subject, uh, subjective experience. Well, if we get away from the word enlightenment and Buddhist enlightenment, then we're already moving towards the direction of something human. And I think that's important for listeners, even if they are Buddhist. Why? Well, 
you know, Stuart, most folks on this planet are not Buddhist, and they likely couldn't care less about Buddhism and Buddhist enlightenment. So I think if there is something to the enlightenment awakening business, then it needs to survive Buddhism, and it needs to be describable, understandable, and available beyond Buddhism. This doesn't mean I want to do away with Buddhism, but rather I want the human phenomena to be human and not enclosed within Buddhism. So getting away from the linguistic traps is, is the first start. And, and I think uh, to be devoid of the traps are, are inevitable when you imprison phenomena within any religious ideology. So where do we go from this? Well, let's just say one more thing, and I'd, I'd like to hear something from you. I think actually Daniel Ingram is a good chap to mention at this point. He's a, a famous character who self-defined as an arahant, so that is an awakened person. Uh, and I would actually agree with the line that folks such as Ingram have taken, that any discussion of awakening phenomena has to start with people's actual experience. It has to start with looking at what people are doing and what's taking place within long-term practice and results mixed in with other non-meditation human activity. I think that a contemporary model of awakening would need to be built on actual human experience as explored and explicated by human beings alive at this time. And I think they would, these people would need to be capable of articulating their breakthrough moments and the, their ongoing experience in a way that is accessible to non-Buddhists. Such descriptions would then need to be shared, refined, compared, uh, elaborated and critiqued. And the claimants of such experience would then be invited to take the critique on board and explore further in order to come back with even further refinements. You know, they could even be expected to teach such experiences and practice to non-Buddhists without relying on any Buddhist vocabulary or jargon at all. I think that would help in unlocking human practice from the confines of Buddhism or spirituality in general. The last, uh, the last thing I'll mention as well here is phenomenology. A basis for an emergent contemporary model of awakening would need to draw on phenomenology as a basis for at least the attempt to objectively describe subjective experience. Phenomenology as a method of philosophical inquiry generally is concerned with accurate descriptions of experience, and it's not perfect, but certainly it's a direction that can be moved towards. I think it does provide a sort of discipline uh, that could help a collective of awakened or semi-awakened humans elaborate uh, a discourse of emergent awakening that is less loaded with religious or spiritual jargon. Uh, most discussion of enlightenment phenomena is all about the Big Bang, the moment, and the idea of perfection that we've already set aside. What's more useful is actually saying, well, what happens six months, six years down the line? How does that person experience their relationship with the two big ideas that we get from Buddhism, such as emptiness or compassion? How do these people actually cope or experience this sort of freedom that they've claimed in relationships, at work, uh, dealing with the frustrations of life, of politics and the rest? Is the change lasting? Does it evolve? Is it limited? Uh, was the original experience accurately described? Is there stability in the form of freedom? And is it being challenged by anybody, including contemporaries, which I think is a major issue? Or is it being reaffirmed by one's peers, which is the problem again with sort of awakening that is validated by a tradition that then remains inside it? I think we need to be encouraging a culture of reinvigoration of the language. And through doing so, we could perhaps create a new sort of ideational architecture that emerges out of Buddhism, but is not left there or overly dependent on it. What do you say about that? That's really specific. And I see that this, I see our format, we're kind of differing from our normal format as you lay down some solid pointers. One of the things I heard you mention, I was curious about, you know, the, the exact specifics of what phenomenology is, because that's not something that I tend to explore or it's not a term I'm, I'm very familiar with so in case anybody needs clarification on that it's the philosophical study of the structure of experience and consciousness 
very possibly on reading that definition, then yeah, I would go down some phenomenological lines. I like where this is going. I like the idea of people within their own lives, within their own experiences, and within what they've been taught to be reality, embracing the experience of going renegade and addressing that taboo, specifically in this case, the taboo of awakening. Because, as you know, Matthew, within society, the acceptance the possibility and the discussion of the irrelevance on the irrelevance on the the relevance of awakening is taboo isn't it i have noticed (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad you've noticed (laughs) we're just mentioning daniel i mean he he got a lot of uh flack for self-defining as an arahant and i think there are probably still you know keyboard warriors on Reddit or some sort of Buddhist forum stating how they know that Daniel's incorrect because they've read a book somewhere that told them so and they can they can quote some you know saying from their you know the Buddha that they read last week yeah yeah that's right and we both know that the plural of arhant is arhants isn't it that's right we've mentioned that before you 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 like that I that's do. that's nice i love that <laughs> so i see that as being interesting indicator of the way that society thinks. You know, I'm in the UK, so I don't necessarily see how America's doing that or countries in Europe are doing that or even Australia, New Zealand, wherever. But definitely within the UK, it's clear to see that there's people on the news saying if you kind of get to grips with what's going on inside you or you start to address some of the specifics of this, then could this hold societal relevance? It appears to me that it's almost as taboo as discussing of how we should as human beings behave as a collective tribe on the planet. It seems to fall within that area, you know. So rather than it being a constructive discussion, it's a reactive. We're taught to be reactive as human beings rather than constructively addressing individually and collectively working on how to solve these problems. It also seems to me that the, the metaphorical lift of what Buddhism can bring to society, it appears that that lift... You know, there's a saying in, in the UK that, for example, somebody who's not all there, that their lift doesn't go all the way to the top, right? Or they're a sandwich short of a picnic. So it's kind of that metaphorical lift within mainstream society only seems to reach the floor as far as this discussion goes and this approach goes, and that what Buddhism can bring to the table, that it only reaches mindfulness and the, the applications and the related health benefits that mindfulness can bring. That brings us back to the reasons for being specific and looking at actual human experience. And the taboo, in a sense, as you as you as you seem to be indicating, uh, it supports that. It supports that sort of vacuous inability to actually step up, get mature, and say, "Well, really, what's going on? Can we can we get over the power games?" But as I said in the intro, one of the the points on the fifteen, enlightenment or Buddhist enlightenment or spiritual awakening is highly political, and for that reason, it's also economically important because, as you well know, many of the people that claim to be enlightened, uh, the vast majority are not Buddhist. Uh, the vast majority are New Age teachers or New Advaita, and a good number of them have turned that into a profit. You know, they spin a fair few pennies by selling their wares as, you know, Tommy Enlightened Dude. Geshi, Geshi, Geshi. Well, we, we actually, you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead with this because we, we, we got a list of uh, the top 10 enlightened people at present, which we'll present to you later. I, know, I, can't, wait. I can't wait till we get there. We'll, we'll get to that later, but you know what I'm saying, right? So if you disempower these individuals from their money-making schemes by actually saying, look, what you've achieved is really nothing special. Now, it may be to you as an individual, but you're still selling, you're selling empty, empty metaphors. You're selling, you know, wishful thinking and you're selling a abstraction and in most cases they're just selling their personal story 
it's kind of is an interesting taboo when looking at it as a taboo. And I'm very much about breaking taboos. You know, there's there's a few that we should have in society, but otherwise killing's clearly a taboo for good reason. But there's more that could be said about that, but that's not the topic of the podcast, really, is it? So the taboo when looking at it is, it is that that taboo changes in Buddhist circles, obviously because it's a central core component and concept of what Buddhism is one of these central pieces. But then when you start to go around the different groups that you were talking about, Matthew, is that it, it's, it's an ineffable concept. It's ethereal. And because of this, the agreed definitions vary, change, and very often are mysteriously shrouded, which is why I like what you're doing with the specifics of that, you know, that point by point. Lisp is that it's starting to say, well, look, this is a problem. This stops us from really understanding what it is. At the other end of the spectrum, it's saying, this is limiting us in our understanding because we're not allowing to explore on this end. But on the other end, we need to understand more about this. It needs to be expanded upon. We need to get clearer on this. Rather than knocking through a, a brick wall that somebody's put up, we need to explore an area that nobody's gone into because it's somebody's put up a bit of tape, like a police line, do not cross. In most traditions, it's mm. forever unattainable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very distant carrot, and it's a strange game to play and entertain. It's odd that uh, most people in the West would just settle on the get happy craze of mindfulness. What the hell's the point of being a Buddhist if you don't actually take the end goal or the purpose of this path as actually something that's realizable? And, you know, as you said, uh, keeping that as a taboo just means that all creative and constructive critique of this phenomena is just left aside. And I like the idea of the police line. I think that's a good, <laughs> good metaphor. Cool. So the, just, a, just a couple more quick points. The final goal and the destination is, becomes, because they can't agree on the map, it's subject to change. Buddhist groups generally don't agree upon the map and because it's dependent upon maps that are not agreed upon it becomes impossible to grip upon the what of what are we discussing what is enlightenment not only is the word not a good fit you know awakening is probably better although like you said we can do better than that and we should but what is what is this as an attainable objective and if we don't know what the attainable objective is is matthew how can we know how that will benefit society yeah, well, I've got I've got a few things to say on that. Obviously, <laughs> you do okay. We're we're clearly we're clearly in the right place then. <laughs> Talking about maps, I think I'll bring uh, Mr. Ingram back in because he's done a, a great service to Western Buddhists or those interested in Western Buddhism. And his book, Mastering the Core Teaching of the Buddha, does a lot to break taboos and deconstruct a lot of what's wrong with Western fantasy about the phenomena of Buddhist enlightenment. Uh, I mean, two things he does in particular, he dismantles many of the existing maps that you just alluded to, and he does so from the different Buddhist traditions in a very straightforward and logical manner. And he also reworks the most straightforward map he found from Buddhism into a fairly accessible form. Now, I have to make a confession here. I, I did the same thing, Stuart. Now, Ingram and his uh, cohorts tend to follow a form of Buddhism that I, I don't, uh, you know, which is Theravada-style practice or Burmese. So they do practices like noting and so forth. Uh, I come from a more sort of uh, Tibetan-style, non-dualistic, tantric background. So that's what inspires me. But what I did was a long project. It was very experimental, but I thought, why not? Called Reconfigure Enlightenment. If anybody's crazy enough, they might want to go and have a look at that over at the post-traditional site. That's the second plug in the show, Stuart. Plug, plug. I think it's got some <laughs> some pros and cons. <laughs> The, uh, the map that Ingram used with the four stages or paths of awakening, and these paths are accumulative. Uh, each one has specific characteristics. Each equates to the dissolution or destruction of specific fetters and describes the number of lifetimes a person will live before being fully awakened. Now, I hope you notice what I just said, the number of lifetimes. 
Yeah, could be could be many. Uh, could be many. Actually, we're going to set aside the reincarnation stuff, which is what I did, and keep that as a meta- metaphor for the human experience within a single lived life. Uh, if you do that, the map starts to become interesting, Stuart. And if you if you're a bit cocky, like I can be, if you're a bit fearless, if you're happy to break taboos and be experimental, then I think you can do fun things with it. I made a map, and I'm going to mention a couple of points for it, and you'll tell me what you think. So some of the premises of the priests I wrote uh, in rejigging this phenomena are as follows. Don't worry, they're not 15. There are nine. <laughs> Go and have a coffee. <laughs> Buckle in. <laughs> Buckle in. <laughs> Absolutely. Be patient, folks. Be patient. We're going to take you somewhere interesting. If not, you get your money back. Number one is awakening involves extinguishing the notion of an atomistic eye and disrupting the selfing process that surrounds it. Number two, the self is both individually and collectively made. Three, nirvana as the goal equals no longer selfing or being in the selfing process, not the extinguishing of consciousness or an ego in the Freudian sense. There's another taboo gone. Number four, it is not possible to supersede physical suffering entirely, only manage it or relate to it. Therefore, awakening is concerned primarily with psycho-emotional suffering, from anxiety to worry, from blind rage to neediness, attachment, jealousy to general shittiness, from shyness to being oversensitive, and so on and so on. Five, reincarnation in this model is a metaphor for the relationship a person has with the patterns of selfing and the suffering equated with it, and the degree to which a person identifies or re-identifies with those patterns once uh, initial breakthrough has been achieved, which in this model is uh, defined initially as first path. Number six, the stages describe a means for experiencing nirvana, that is freedom from identification with a selfing process, through dismantling the fetters, which could be understood as intrapsychic phenomena, which basically means they're psycho-emotional reactive patterns. Now seven, we're almost at the end of stages, they map the moments of accumulative insight into the nature of the self, experientially and uh, perceptually. That builds momentum and successive breakthrough defined as second to fourth paths. Number eight, breaking with a fetter or stage requires experiential insight and a destabilization of the continuity of these patterns of selfing and direct insight into their nature or existence inside of our subjective experience as a human being. And number nine, the last one, uh, each path or stage brings about tangible freedoms which equate to an intensity of well-being and personal liberation. So there you go. The map describes a progression of uh, stages of uncoupling consciousness from the anchor of a self-centered or atomized I. The one problem, though, of course, Stuart, is that the map provides no reflection on what comes next, but it does provide, I think, a sort of tangible, workable basis for understanding the progression of insight into our subjectivized experience and its relationship with patterns of uh, individual suffering. One weakness that I might add is that Buddhism in general and the renderings of the map, they, they really don't tend to deal with the collective self and the collective self and uh, collective patterns of suffering and generally uh, fail to address what might come after, Stuart. That's a really specific list, and I believe that that's relevant. It allows people that don't necessarily want to signify as Buddhist, it will allow people to be able to look at the fuller experience of what it is to be a human being they can look at the tangible freedoms that are available to them that will allow them to reach levels of less suffering so that they can more fully work with their lives, whatever that happens to be. Dave Chapman's done some really interesting work on this, saying that when Buddhism was adopted 
I believe it was Zen, is that it went in at the the higher level, it went into higher levels or upper class levels of society, and that then it's worked its way down through upper society, through middle class, and now it's at the working class levels, is that because it's been absorbed into culture at a certain level, and if it hadn't been absorbed into culture at a certain level, we wouldn't have uh, mindfulness movements and we wouldn't have fairly accessible Buddhist centers better or worse, within local environments. Because it's worked its way through, people aren't running to it as an ex- necessarily as an exotic form of expression, and that therefore people don't want to identify as, as Buddhists as a, as a signifier of who they are or what they are, for whatever reason. I think we have to be a little bit careful about assuming that it's that available to the lower economic class. I mean, again, that, that could take us off topic a little bit, but certainly it's easier for a middle class or upper middle class person to meditate or get training. And if we talk about traditional forms of Buddhism, I mean, as you probably well know, retreats can be rather expensive. And although some retreat centers provide spaces for uh, the unemployed or whatever, the disadvantaged, uh, they tend to be very few. And generally it is you know, it's the arena of those who are well off and have lots of free time. So I think that doesn't quite fit in with what you said. But you're right. If we talk about mindfulness, I mean, certainly in England, the NHS now, the National Health Service, does offer mindfulness as a form of treatment, as an alternative to medication for depression and some other, let's say, work-related illnesses. So you're right. And there are lots of free classes around and it, it can theoretically be done. I think one thing I would take off, though, from what you've just said is that um, slowly but surely, we, we kind of do have the opportunity to engage in a, a democratization of Buddhism and its content. You know, I don't think, I don't want anybody to think that my list is somehow the list of the new list that needs to replace any others. It's just my exploration and sort of critical imaginative thinking. But it is an example of the democratization of Buddhist knowledge and practice. And it's my go. And I'd like to see more of that happening. And I think that is more possible. Now, Daniel Ingram did much the same, although it's fair to argue, you know, he's a doctor, so he's got a fairly comfortable lifestyle. But there's nothing really that should stop anybody, you know, whether they're unemployed, have a university degree or not, if they're reasonably intelligent, if they're a thinking individual of picking up anybody's practice or text, getting some experience, you know, under their wings, and then just saying, you know what, I'd like to play with this, pull it apart, reword it and see what happens. And I think we need more of that. That's right. And even what you said there is quite important because you said to pick up a book and to think about it. Now, Buddhism's not supposed to be about thinking. So that in itself, that it become more of a phenomenological process. Well, it's starting with what's real as well, rather than what's fantasy. There are entire structures built around Buddhist identities, practices and groups, which are, you know, artificial constructs that individuals are expected to plug into, align with and uh, regurgitate and then um, manifest in their, you know, themselves. They're supposed to become this model that they're given by a specific Buddhist group. And you see this certainly with the more fundamentalist groups. Certainly the, the, the Tibetans tend to sort of fall into that trap a little bit more. But again, let's continue with the line of pragmatism, Stuart, because you were kind of pointing towards that as well. I think it might be worth us uh, touching on the subject of peak experience and meaningful breakthroughs and permanent transformation. Um, you and I have both met a lot of people who've made claims about themselves 
a lot of new age teachers who've claimed to be awakened, enlightened and so forth. I meet people because of my my background uh, and some of the coaching I do. I get quite interesting characters turn up. I also do some shamanic work in Slovenia. I've had a few people turn up there. Basically, they, you know, they claim to be these fully enlightened beings, as is al- almost always happens, Stuart. A month down the line, you hear about the fact that they've screwed up their relationship. And then six months down the line, they're depressed and unemployed. And uh, to me, it's a telltale sign of people interpreting peak experience and their wishful thinking into something else. Cool story. That was the third plug of the episode right there. <laughs> it's a funny business. It's quite sad in a way that humans are uh, surrounded by these odd ideas about what enlightenment is or could be and the significance of such, you know, i.e. can turn you into a superhuman who is utterly free and often immoral but anyway let's have a look um as i said peak so experiences that's, that's not the that's not the moral superman that's the immoral superman uh, that's what it beca- yeah <laughs> yeah we got a few of those around they uh they're flying high and they crash and burn it makes me think about a book called the flying boy do you remember that the flying boy i remember the story of icarus but the flying boy no all right, so The Flying Boy obviously is based on that myth. It was a book that was recommended to you and I when we were both young, strapping lads in our very early 20s when we did some participation in men's groups. Robert Bly. Well, he wrote that uh, classic of the men's movements, which was called Iron John, which some of our listeners will have read. Very interesting book, actually. Very much of its time, but quite insightful. There were some other books as well. Uh, it might have been a chap called Sam, Sam Keane. Yeah. Fire in the Battle. Ah, that's right. That was the second one. And the, the third one was called The Flying Boy. The, the author used this metaphor of The Flying Boy as a metaphor for escapism and the tendency for young men to lose their contact with the earth and that is the material plane and get lost in fantasy in the clouds. And that can take various forms, whether drugs or music or, in this case, uh, notions of spiritual practice and enlightenment. They, these guys seem to live out the metaphors. I've met quite a few of them. And what's often missing is a sense of humor and the ability to ground their experience. But there are many peak experiences, and they can be extremely, extremely powerful, especially if we're talking about psychedelics. But as most uh, experimenters with psychedelics will know, they're, they're temporary. They do cause, or scattare, as we'd say in Italian, they, they provoke certain types of change. They can be experienced alone and with partners and in a group. And needless to say, Stuart, referring back to a past episode, cultish behavior throughout uh, history has often involved generation or manipulation of uh, peak experience in groups. Interesting, huh? One issue with peak experience is that it often gets framed in an excessively positive light. And I would suggest that uh, one of the problems with the New Age movement is it tends to ignore the negative or the dissent that say we're going to use the opposite metaphor. There are extremely, extremely negative experiences, which are a form of peak experience, which can lead to as much insight, or if not, more important insight than these pro-positive, orgiastic or ecstatic states. Unfortunately, the vast majority of the positivity brigade tend to ignore this. That's a really good point, and that juxtaposition. The Iron John book talks about within that step, there's a step later in that process, where the metaphorical description of it is called eating ash, of, of eating the, the burnt-up remains of whatever that is. Because getting that high experience takes fuel, it takes a, it's a propulsion into something. If you're propelling away from something, in this case, Earth, therefore there's going to be what goes up comes down. When you come down, it's burnt up, burnt out. There's remains, and clearly, as a collective society, we don't want to acknowledge that, look at that, 
I think technology fuels that without going off of topic. There's a process within that book of saying, of eating ash, of eating what's used up. And for me, what I hear you saying, Matthew, is that that plugs directly into the acknowledgement of negative states, the acknowledgement that suffering exists, the acknowledgement of decay, and the acknowledgement of death. I mean, love and light is fine, but loss and letting go are of equal importance. I think you're very aware of this yourself. Loss can lead to the most profound of changes. You know, the whole again, the whole topic of peak experience could be discussed further. It's both welcomed and shunned by Western society, or rather it's, it's welcomed in very specific forms. The, the lack of ritual or collective rituals for healthy ascent or rites of passages is actually one of the failings of modern society. And again, that's, that's a big topic, very interesting one for me personally. Those, those experiences need to be acknowledged and welcomed and valorized appropriately. And I think the word valorize is important. I think actually a one step actually in a sense is to devalorize self-defined awakening or enlightenment experiences for these people. Devalorizing them brings them back down to earth if we're going to continue with that metaphor. It's weird. It's like when it's so abstract, there's a, there's a need to sort of bring things into concrete terms and to be pragmatic. And if you devalorize these experiences and the cultural value that they can hold, then they can be stripped perhaps of the additional values that are sort of tacked on, uh, bypass some of the, you know, the sort of blind avenues that people end up in. Spiritual circles, new age circles, you know, you talk about these experiences, most people will switch off and just ignore you, which is healthy. But within those sort of new age groups, they, um, they sort of confer a certain degree of social status and competitiveness as well. And, of course, they give rise to, you know, forms of delusion. Or places like Glastonbury. Or, yeah, that's right, mini, mini vortexes in which you can hide out and live the full escapist experience 24-7. <laughs> We'd know about that, wouldn't we, Stuart? We've been to Glastonbury a fair few times. <laughs> We've been through that phase. Yo, man. <laughs> Let's walk the tour and tune into the vibes. Leyline anybody? <laughs> i'll bring my dowsing rods <laughs> yeah and my crystal crystal pyramid um there's another taboo to break but uh i think i've got a point to raise here that's actually useful stuart talking about metaphors metaphors are fundamental even though i'm trying to be pragmatic and state things in more clear terms metaphors remain of course you know that's the nature of language i think one thing we could do as a collective of experimenters pulling apart these ideas and practices is we might evolve a theory and practice of human existence along the horizontal axis rather than the vertical. And we could probably view that horizontal axis as, as a lived organic place in which peak experience is not up and down, but is expansion and contraction or emergent becoming and something that's in constant movement. And uh, it's a relational space. This is something I hint at, hinted at the beginning. And I think we could actually stretch that to an articulation of an idea of horizontal awakening, which bypasses completely ascent and descent. And I'm not drawing on Ken Wilber's work here, Stuart, because I'm actually not, you know, very knowledgeable about that. You know, but obviously we are, as we've said before on this podcast, the inheritors of a Judeo-Christian worldview, which saturates much of our, our language and the concepts that infiltrate common discourse. And we do struggle to escape its influence and its ascent and its idea of an impure earth and the body is sinful. 
And it does come out in Buddhist circles, in my view, in its most common form as the ego as bad or the ego as you know negative construct that we have to escape from. And again, that's that's where the idea of no escape comes. I think we need to escape fully from such notions as escape and uh, ascendance or transcendence. And any notion of moving towards the light is corrupted and uh, best got rid of, in my view. And uh, I think even the metaphors of heaven and hell, which of course exist in Buddhism too, uh, should be jettisoned along with purity perfection and the angelic and I think they're all actually harmful I think we need to seriously reevaluate the metaphors we use and organic earthly metaphors would be a, a good start nice agreed the ideas for me within this discussion that I've written down here are the avoidance of reductionism for one obviously we're immersed within a materialistic society and it kind of re rejects anything that doesn't sit within that ridicule of that or just flat out rejection of that and then what i hear you saying matthew is the what i would term as planetary interconnectedness now that could get really woo woo that could be you know that could can be you say it again that was such a special phrase i think we need to hear it again planetary interconnectedness <gasps> wow what's that that's got to do with the galactic council man <laughs> <laughs> we should get them in for an interview we need them on i don't know how we're going to contact archangel michael but we can do that we need to go back to glastonbury obviously <laughs> all right you go up the tour i'll go up the other one and <laughs> bring a ditch but planetary interconnectedness that could get really woo but if we're talking on a horizontal scale we're not going to go near the woo on that right so um what discussions are relevant as to Actually, sorry, I have to interrupt. I don't really know where you're going to go with that, so you're going to have to be more explicit. I will be more explicit. And, and this is, for me, if you want to get more specific, the discussion would be, what do the specifics of awakening bring to the table? What does the objective of taking that adventure, that exploration, stepping through the doorway of that, what does that bring to humanity as a collective? And what are the limits pertaining to what enlightenment or awakening is? What does that do for us as a humanity? And for me, that brings in planetary interconnectedness. It sounds like a way out there term, but it's not really if you think about it. Communities are connected. Communities are connected to communities and countries are connected to countries. And more increasingly with the internet, it's, un it's, un it's an unavoidable reality. And therefore, the, the sharing of knowledge and wisdom it's really important. But the idea of materialism, reductionism, we don't want to get so reductive that we just kind of take all of the meaning out of what we're doing, for one. It needs to hold inherent meaning. The idea of materialism as being of what it is without going on a whole diatribe about it is that it's clearly a problem. We're not in balance with the way that we deal with a lot of the stuff that we do in the world. Something that I said when we were when we were throwing ideas back and forward on this and you said get clearer on it was the idea of the sacred. The idea of reality or the world being sacred. I looked up the Google definition of this, Matt, and it, it came up with connected with God or a God or dedicated to a religious purpose and so deserving veneration. Now, I wouldn't go that far necessarily unless you want to get goddess-centric and look at the world in terms of a, as a god or a goddess. But I would go as far as to say humanity split with nature and therefore itself to a greater or lesser extent. And something that really came into sharp contrast for me is, rather than it looking at the world as clearly it is alive, but the idea of a shamanic approach, maybe potentially some of the approaches that, that Shintoism and Taoism have, 
could be useful in this, in just saying that to bring the appropriate level of respect to our environment, to our relationship, what we're doing as human beings, is, and that maybe that, that has something that it can bring to the table, and that the awakening could inform that in some way. Now, maybe that's a useful discussion, and maybe that brings something to the table, or maybe I've just gone off track again, and you need to bring me back on track. What do you say? We're definitely moving in slightly different directions today, but that's we are, okay. We are. We'll see how, how listeners get on with it. I would add a couple of things, though, to this, this sort of slightly vague discussion you started. I didn't think it was vague. It was quite specific to me, but maybe when I listen back, <laughs> maybe I've just gone off on one and it's just like, what? Well, well, you know, it is what it is. Um, yeah, I, I, I like words like spiritual and sacred. I like them because they're so loaded and they're so problematic. And yet I, I hear what you're saying about a sort of, you know, reverting to an over-dependence on materialistic, rationalistic views of the world. It's mad to assume that human beings are fundamentally rational or logical. I think that's nonsense. You mentioned the animal self before and the tendency for modern society to uh, scorn such aspects of our being mm -hmm. in search of the rational and the measurable and so forth. And it's an interesting line here because I am being specific and I am uh, trying to take away the abstraction and excessive symbolic nature of Buddhist discussion of these topics. As listeners know, I'm not a scientist and I don't think I've ever expressed myself to be an extreme rationalist. And actually, I like the word sacred to a degree, but I want to know what it means and I don't want to use it without clarifying that. I think one of the things that tends to happen at the metaphorical level when we talk about the rational and the material, what we tend to see is a barren horizontal landscape. It's not occupied with living, breathing beings that are enmeshed in each other. That seems to be a certain outcome of rationalism and materialism and the atheist view. What we need is a language that can actually give value to the world we inhabit, yeah. to human beings and relationships, but that doesn't re doesn't rely too much on the woo-woo that you were sort of sort of dipping in and out of. I think there is an interesting Speaking thing. In, in and out of the woo. In and out and around. <laughs> but I think Trumper actually had something interesting to say here because... On the, sa on the sacred, he was really, you know... You yeah, know. yeah, but not just that. I mean, he talked about... He talked about the notion of hope and fear and the abandonment of hope and fear. That's an interesting notion because much of what we put out as our investment in the spiritual or escapism or the holy or the wise teacher and all of it is actually a play on those two themes. It's hope and it's an inability to deal with the fear of nothingness or the loss of meaning and the loss of a sense of self and a place in the world. I think actually what we need to do in the West is to reinvigorate the notion of the sacred and the symbols that we use around it. We do need ritual, and we need ritual not as the maintenance of Christian traditions, although that may work for some people, but I think we need to be creative in elaborating new forms of social symbolic play and performance and recognize that, okay, these things may not have true inherent value. They may not actually be transmitted by an all-wise father figure. They may not be, in my experience, the, the, the old ancient truth that is lost that's often found in discussion of shamanism and these pre-Christian religious practices. Within that, there is a basic sense of life as sacred. But what does that mean? I think it means that life is precious, uh, that life is noble and worthy of value and respect. But that's a human construct. And I think often we get lost in the material. It's like looking at what's real, what's not, what's true, what's not. And it's actually recognizing, as Shakespeare said, that life is a stage and we are performers. And if we can actually understand what performance means, realize that Buddhist practice 
often is performance and it's just been interpreted badly, then perhaps we could be uh, imaginative and critical enough and creative enough to elaborate forms of performance of Buddhist practices that could help liberate groups. And that's a direction I'd like to eventually go in. And the one person I know that, that probably thinks in a similar line is, is David Chapman um, when it comes to Tantra. And I think he's not wrong that Tantra holds many of the keys to an elaboration or a re-elaboration of a form of sacred performance that could liberate not just individuals sat on their own, but groups of individuals. And it could allow groups to perform some of the violent, uh, uncomfortable dissent, not dissent, oh dear, I'm going back there, sort of work that leads to certain forms of human insight. There it is. Uh, is that clear? Very cool and very clear. Yeah. The last point to say there, in my, my limited understanding of postmodernity, postmodernity denies value to everything because it recognizes that there are no fixed inherent things here. But what it tends to do is it devalorizes everything and it doesn't know how to give proper value to experience. And I think if you take human suffering as the basis for a morality, then I, I think you've got a lot to work with. And yes, you can understand that certain cultural practices are better than others. Certain beliefs are more dysfunctional than others. It doesn't say that they're fixed and permanent and they're the best, which leads us to that idea of perfection again, which saturates many of our human fallacies. But it could say that some are better than others, and we could always be striving to improve on these things and assign value as a choice. We're going down another rabbit hole. Yeah, we are going down another rabbit hole, but that's an important rabbit hole to go down. And if we're talking about building a specific map, we need to know what the landmarks are and the areas that are relevant and of, of import that we can use to navigate and that we can employ as fuel potentially, or at least as markers on that journey to know where we're at. And that yeah. even though some of my discussion isn't specifically Buddhist, and if some of the listeners are expecting that from me, it really struck me with the specificity of Matthew's work that he's done with this, that there should be a juxtaposition, there should be a, a counter-argument. My question to myself was, how can I bring meaning to this discussion? And of course, it's always an adventure and a challenge to do that. But some of the material that I'm bringing strikes me as important because we need to understand the tapestry of what we're working with. And introducing awakening to that tapestry radically changes the journey that we're on as human beings, I believe, from my own experience. It's necessary, as far as I understand it, Matt. Yeah. The inability of, let's say, intelligent individuals who've gone, gone far with these practices to actually get involved in the process of, of remaking Buddhism or remaking practices that lead to some form of human liberation and freedom from the, the individual and collective self thing processes. I think one thing that comes out is that humans must choose. And I think when we must choose, then obviously we must come to a point where we recognize that many people unconsciously choose dogmatic fundamentalist religions. And in Buddhism, you know, that there are the, such forms such as the NKT that we spoke about before, or they choose a uh, long-term uh, commitment to very dysfunctional group dynamics, such as that of Sogya Rinpoche's uh, Rigpa group. They do this for a reason. They do this because they, they feel quite strongly that they need to find value in their lives. That's going to continue. The rational uh, materialist atheist brigade, they don't quite understand that. The atheist brigade... That's what I'm calling them. Uh, Sam Harris is probably a person to mention here because Sam Harris obviously is one of the famous new atheists and he's a Buddhist practitioner and he's, he's written a book about Buddhist meditation. I think in a sense, he, he's kind of moving in that direction too. How successful, I don't know because I have, haven't read the book. We need intelligent people to actually recognize the messiness, the chaos and the uh, irrational and try to find uh, ways to articulate a meaningful response to that that's not just dismissive. 
you know, there it is. But Stuart, let's get back towards this enlightenment discussion. Get us back, get us back on track, Matthew. Can we talk about what comes after? Can we? Yeah, let's talk about that. So what have we done so far? We've uh, we've basically dismantled many of the taboos. We've set aside many of the fallacies that allowed those two taboos to prosper. We've used a sort of uh, pragmatic elaboration of an alternative model that could describe very human experience. Obviously, this human experience has to be, let's say, trained or learned or worked with. And so we haven't really touched on that, but that's, that's not necessarily our priority today. But we could have a future discussion, perhaps with a guest, about the teacher-student dynamics, group dynamics, where people practice together, uh, feedback groups such as the Dharma Overground, which is one of the few that's been involved in elaborating and exploring awakening phenomena. I think we need more of that. Uh, but I'd like to talk about what comes after, because like I said, peak experience often uh, deteriorates or falls apart. And what we're interested in is in human experience and human change that is lasting or, dare I say, permanent. So in my limited understanding of Buddhism, and I, I may be wrong here, if you, if you know more about me, do, do interrupt. It seems that later forms that followed on from the earlier forms of Theravada Buddhism, such as the Mahayana, later the Vajrayana, in part, they were an attempt to address the question of what comes next. Okay, you know, of what, a, what an awakened person actually is. Now, we've already said that they're human. Okay, and that actually the enlightenment experience is imperfect or, or limited to human experience. But I think things like, you know, the Amitabha, pure lands, the Buddha realms, the idea of multiple Buddha bodies. And I think even the notion of the Bodhisattva is an attempt to answer that question or get round it. And I think actually the notion of the Bodhisattva takes us towards what, let's say, post-awakening actually is as human experience. And I think it's the most interesting metaphor that comes from Buddhism. If we set aside the notion of the Holy One as, as perfect... And if we set aside again that notion of escape into full enlightenment in order to remain and save all beings, and we replace it with the notion of a metaphor of a being, a human being, who is engaged in awakening activity. So this is not a fixed object or possession. That awakened person remains embodied in the earthly plane with a finite organic body and with no escape, no Buddha field to run off to, no merging of mind with omniscience. I think that human being is basically here. I think the BS, can I call the Buddhist set for the BS? No, that sounds like bullshit. Sounds the B. Like, like bullshit. Let's, call him, let's call him the B. I think the B then is not an awakened one, but a continuously awakening one. That a human being cannot become an awakened being. I don't think, as I said at the beginning, such thing exists because it would imply some sort of fixed permanence somewhere. But I think what we can talk about is a human being who is fully immersed within the organic and ecological plane, which would pick up on your woo-woo metaphor, I think is a being who has awakened from identification with the selfing process, who's let go of the, uh, the atomized subjective experience of being apart from others and having a, some sort of soul somewhere. And I think that that person, in a sense, Stuart, re-emerges re into the world as an integral, holistically conscious element of existence. Uh, that, that, that's a, actually a very basic thing, and it's not as fancy as it sounds, and that the basic reality that that person experiences is so simple that we, we taste moments of it constantly, but that we're incapable, let's say, of existing within that modality of being. In that sense, ide ideology remains. Human beings continue to exist within ideology as human activity and the world of language and symbols. But I think that a person is immersed within that, but is not identified with it. And does not suffer, you know, emotionally and psychologically as a result. And I think that a, a bee could leave or exact change in that ideology, okay, because they've gained enough psycho-emotional freedom to do so. And they've dissolved their identification with it and their own historical narrative. I think that brings what you might define as space or, or spaciousness within uh, the conscious experience of being very much intimate with reality. 
uh, that allows a person to play and reinterpret the games of life and perhaps give rise to new social practices, if they're courageous enough, without being lost in them. I think that person is never perfect, they're always finite limited, and they will experience others as intimate aspects of co-emergent being. And, and I hope this language is not too far out there, but it works for me at, at present. And I think that person then works with the limits that they possess uh, due to their physical nature, their genetic makeup, uh, their education, lack of or whatever. You know, when your, your arm hurts, you, you automatically rub it. When we experience ourselves as co-emergent with other beings, uh, when you see suffering, you respond to it. These people are flawed like everybody else. They can't do perfect, miraculous things. That's, uh, that's my view of it. Yeah, I agree. Does that work? I don't know if I've been clear. I've tried to be. Yeah, I think you've been really clear. And that plugs into something that I see as a core component of this, for want of a better word, path of this journey, of this adventure or this process, if you want to talk about praxis, is the development of an open source system because bringing up those points makes this much more of a workable open source system. And enlightenment is a developmental skill. Now, this might plug into some brain scan stuff or fMRI stuff, which we may discuss in a moment. We may not. You said earlier that these lists were to shock horror, improve upon, or to to rework what awakening is. I would also add to that, I would add to for it to be innovated, integrated, and evolved. Innovated in terms of you improved upon, it's just a different way of saying it. Integrated, not only does it integrate within our daily lives within people's individual and collective lives, but also within society. It becomes a workable form or a workable structure, or more importantly, regardless of form or structure, a workable process, because then that means that the form and the structure is fluid. And to be evolved, that it works within the evolving landscape of human experience, that it works within the evolving bodies of knowledge that we have as available to us as human beings, that it integrates and evolves in line with that, so we don't end up with a 500-year lag for whatever reason. This would then mean that we end up with a body of evolving knowledge and understanding regarding what it is to be human, of our human potential, and how to embody and live with that. And I would love to see without you know without getting all um all teary-eyed about this i would love to see this made available to kids in school as children are growing up i would like to see this available as a means for them to make more meaning in their lives and i could go off on a whole thing on that but this isn't the point but i see that as one of the applications of this that it makes a life a person's life the tapestry and the journey of their life more meaningful and workable and clearly it's not about mindfulness of being happier but it allows the person at whatever stage they're at within their lives to be able to engage and work with their lives as a as a system. You're dr- dreaming big there, Stuart. Dreaming big, but hey, you gotta have you gotta have an end objective. <laughs> Goal orientated, big dreamer. Wow, you're impressive today. Totally. <laughs> well, you know, you talk about human potential. I mean, I find it interesting that um, many of the slightly alternative approaches taken in the West to Buddhism and the revalorization of its practices. It's always impressed me how the secular folks tend to devalorize this sort of freedom that we're hinting at today. It doesn't make sense to me. As you said, it's like, uh, let's just leave that out there as another taboo. If you view awakening as emergent freedom, and again, we could we could work this language much better, the idea of emergent freedom is it's not an object to possess, and it is something that could be an integrated part of a, of a human and a collective experience if a culture was willing to develop a praxis of liberation and give value to it. My basic view is this, that is, it has to be co-emergent with the experience of embodiment. 
it's basically horizontal emergence and flux. It's, it's a quality or an aspect of co-emergent being rather than possession. I'll just say one last thing before I finish up my contribution, which of course is flawed. So I was thinking about this as we were speaking. I wouldn't want listeners to uh, get the impression that we think we've got all the answers here. We, we don't care enough about structure and hierarchy that we can do what we want, really. And this is experimentation, and that's exactly what it is. It is flawed, and feel free to get involved and build and critique and improve, right? Yeah, very welcome. So, very welcome to do so. Yeah. I think one last thing might to say about the model I've presented today, or this idea, is that some questions come up, which is like, how does sensory input open or close the embodied experience uh, to the totality of uh, the experiential spaces he or she inhabits and passes through? Um, Nirvana or freedom might be an enduring ability to experience sensory input and output without closing down, reverting to type, or being caught up in reactivity of the sort uh, Ken McLeod mentioned sometimes. Uh, you know, being unhindered by sensory phenomena. Instead, there's a greater sensory embodiment. But again, it's on a horizontal plane, and it's not all about up and down. You see, that's the thing. Sometimes when you come up with these these, these phrases, people automatically think of better and worse, higher and lower, perfect, imperfect, and, and none of that comes into play. It's horizontal. It's about exploring fields of shared human experience. Awakening could be understood as an experiential embodied capacity to openly relate to experience through the five senses without suffering enduring uh, reactive psychological or emotional suffering. But I think the idea you would lose all, let's say, emotional pain is weird because that would sort of isolate you or lobotomize you to other human beings. And I think like Tantra has, has acknowledged, and again, maybe this was a development in response to this observation, um, you can't suppress your emotions. If you do, you become inhuman. And I think our emotions are part of our humanity and allow us to experience embodiment, experience empathy, compassion, and love. To awaken from identification with reactive patterns of emotional experiences that they are experiences which do not trap us in identification, you know, with a separate self. Therefore, emotion is embodied and felt but fluid and not tied to an individual narrative and the symbolic valorization of positive and negative. One last point. Our ability to respond effectively is really defined by our finitude and our genetic makeup. And I think awakening could become a praxis that allows us to explore the edges of that finitude and, you know, see how far we can go in constructing shared ways of embodied freedom. Um, that's my attempt anyway to make sense of all this, Stuart. And uh, there are many questions that are unanswered, of course, <laughs> and uh, contradictions. That's good work. There are many questions that are not asked as well. Without, yeah. without flipping that on its head too too spaciously, but you said what I was going to say in, in a different way, which is that awakening isn't just in the brain, it's a systems-wide reconfiguration over time. Without looking at peak experiences, you're looking at a, a transformational process as an objective and as a, as a path to travel. And that liberation from existential suffering implies embodied cognition and immersed interaction with the five senses and emotions plus enacted and engaged embodiment within experience. So this then in itself points towards a developmental skill of awakening and that this partly points to Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours towards mastery, which then implies neuroplasticity to develop this skill. Developing any skill takes time. Looking at a, a London cabbie's brain, they get brain changes based upon the London streets, right? So if you're developing any level of skill, it's going to, it's going to apply to, it's going to make changes within you, within your neurology, within your neurophysiology. And so this for me raises important questions that don't necessarily have to be answered, but ones that I'd like to pose. If this is a skill, is it for everybody? 
Should it be for everybody? People will not agree with this. This is taboo, and this is quite a big taboo in Buddhist circles and outside of Buddhist circles, is that people aren't created equal. People are not born with the same propensities and capabilities. I wouldn't be able to sprint against an Olympic athlete. It doesn't matter how hard I try. You know, I just haven't got that capability. Some people are basically prodigies and others naturally excel at some activities over others. And I don't think that this is an exception from awakening or enlightenment. I really don't. This doesn't mean that it's not a relevant skill and that it can't be developed over time. But it's, I think it's folly to think of enlightenment as separate or different from this. And therefore we're going to have, there's going to be some kind of natural hierarchy that would develop over time. Basically, some people are going to go further than others. And I think that that is an interesting discussion. And where do we end up then? And, I, and personally, I see that as part of a, as a working society. You're going to get some people that are really good at woodwork. Some people are better at philosophy. Some people are better at physical activities. Some people might be better than this. But at least it can, it can inform and change our... I hate the word. I really do. It's so overused. The narrative, society's narrative, it can broaden that narrative. But yeah, but that's what I would that's what I would say in, in, in reflection. You're defining it as a skill, which is okay. And I think I think it can be viewed in different ways. So what I've been talking about is embodied experience rather than ability or skill, which is a little bit different. And we've uh, encompassed big ideas of ideological shift and social practice and the possibility of founding a social space in which these embodied abilities or these embodied forms of experiential freedom could be normalized. That's not necessarily based on skill, but it could be based on a reconstruction of, you just said it, the narrative that dominates a particular society through its ideological constructs. There's a, there's a book I think you read by Rick Hansen called uh, The Buddha's Buddha Brain. I didn't read the book. No, there's a section on brain stuff that we haven't covered but I looked, That's at, right. I, look, I looked at some of his, he's got a Google talk. He's got an, uh, a couple of other talks as, in addition to the Google talk. They're pretty interesting, actually. They're pretty interesting. He talks about negativity bias with regards to how this, how, how the process of, of meditation works within the brain. But I don't think we've got time for that. I will mention one other author as well. I reviewed a book of his quite recently, a guy called Richard P. Boyle. Uh, the book was Realizing Awakened Consciousness. He uh, tells the story of a tribe in the Amazon which lacks some of the ideological anchors that we have related to the self and to time. And what he did was he did an analysis of how they experienced the world. And much of it was quite similar to some of the stuff I've been describing today. He didn't use some of the terminology I did. But basically, he talked about them having created social forms of freedom which, or, or collective praxis, which allow for much of what passes for the definition of Buddhist awakening. This is quite interesting. Now, the problem there is that, that the sort of critical thinking element is lacking what you described as a skill tends to bring us back to the sort of very individualized Western social format of the individual always being center. That tension between the individual and the collective and the possibility of the individual's actions impacting the collective and the degree to which groups can actually create spaces of collective sort of emergence into embodied awakening is a very, very interesting discussion to have. But it's early days and it's very ambitious stuff. Absolutely. Those are just the questions that came up. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just yeah. wanted, to, I wanted to pose them. Is a good direction for us to take with the next guest we have on. And I think one thing that we haven't looked at, which some of uh, the sort of non-speculative Buddhist guys would probably have to say, is this relationship between ideology as 
the the overbearing factor which determines everything about us as conscious beings and this idea that there is something called primary or primordial sensorial experience and there's that's an interesting discussion to be had too my view is that some sort of shared primary sensorial experience is possible and it is shared it's not personal i think the the model of embodied awakening that i've come up with in this podcast today would presuppose that that's possible if not, there are difficult questions to raise and discussions to be had. But probably far more intelligent people should be having them, Stuart. I'm not sure I'm up to it. <laughs> are you? <laughs> we should. I wanted to say something about the fact that we lack a real background in, in philosophy. So I imagine that certain listeners, our more intelligent listeners, will be listening to, yeah, but, you know, we've already addressed that issue of ontology or epistemology, you know, with Hume or some other philosopher a couple of hundred years ago. Yeah, I, I don't, wouldn't know how to respond to that. So there you go. Maybe you can. Or not. Or not. Stuart, um, I think this is a good time to bring in our, our sponsor before we do the fun stuff at the end. The Enlightenment Corporation is the company dedicated to bringing about complete enlightenment to those who can afford it. We offer guilt-free awakening to those who desire the very best. Enhance your relationships, business contacts, and sexual performance with total enlightenment. Our fully trained enlightenment consultants are dedicated to making sure you get your money's worth. Our programs guarantee success without that messy morality stuff. Making our unique pay-as-you-go products available for the first time to business CEOs, government officials, and even warlords. Get in touch with one of our Enlightenment consultants today for a taster session and see what Silicon Valley has been raving about. The Enlightenment Corporation a game-changer in emergent awakening technologies. Terms and conditions apply. Undergoing this procedure can lead to the loss of inhibitions, acute narcissism, megalomania, nymphomania, a predilection for expensive cars and material wealth, a tendency to bullshit, and excessive underarm hair growth. Please consult your family physician before undergoing total enlightenment. Okay, welcome back. The last question we've got, and it's going to be a fun one, folks, is who's enlightened? Yeah, who is enlightened? So let's do this. Let's, run, let's have a quick rundown of the top 10. That's 10 to 1. Get excited, folks. You could be on the list. And we're also going to have a look afterwards. Uh, something extra, which I won't mention just yet because I don't want to spoil the fun. Top 10 enlightened dudes, Stuart. Let's see what you think of this. Listeners can obviously send in their entries if they like, if they can improve on the list we've got. You can go and have a look at our Twitter feed, The Imperfect Buddha. Come to our Facebook page, The Imperfect Buddha Podcast, and uh, send in your options. We could, we could basically refine the list over the next few episodes. Uh, all right, here we go. Number 10. Stuart, you may not know this guy. Jananda. Jananda, the great Western vehicle, a.k.a. the fourth vehicle, um, I guess he's in competition with Ken Wilber here, who's also elaborated his own fourth turning of the wheel. Um, Jananda is a shifty-looking bugger. You should have a look at his videos on YouTube. I wouldn't trust him with my daughter. Anyway, it's full of tells as well. Now, you being a, a hypnotherapist, or an emergent one, emergent embodied hypnotherapist, have a look very carefully. He's got lots and lots of tells. 
Number nine, Cy Michael Jackson Barber. <laughs> Think about it. Why? 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 Oh. Oh. Uh, mm. Okay, number eight, Michael Money Roach. <laughs> <laughs> the Get Rich Geshe. The Get Rich Geshe. I love it. Michael Money. It's just got the two M's coming in there. He's it on really the money, works. man. He's on the money. He is, yeah. Get rich, uh, get enlightened, get rich. Uh, number seven, Kelsang Gyatso. Yeah, one of our cult leaders. Uh, he may or may not be alive. He may still be embodied. He may not. Lots of secrecy going on there. Nefarious business. According to Reuters, that Reuters said it, not Stuart and I, uh, he's an unwilling government, uh, Chinese government stooge. I think he's got a younger brother complex concerning the Dalai Lama, an infer- inferiority complex, and uh, he's got a crush on a blood-drinking demon god. Problematic. All right, number six, he's not really a Buddhist, but he's Adida, also considered to be Maitreya by his followers, baptized as Pervy Frank Jones. Then we've got two in a row. We've got fake Maitreya 2, Ronnie Spencer, otherwise known as Buddha Maitreya the Christ 2. What a sequel. All right. Then we've got number four. You may not know this one. This is fantastic. I only just discovered him. Fake Maitreya number one, Claude Vorilhon. He's a UFO cult leader. That's not bad, is it? It's pretty impressive. Where does he get the UFOs? It's a long story. In fact, what's interesting, Stuart, this is synchronicity. It's karma, mate. It's karma. In uh, Trieste, there were two chaps who, for the first time ever, last week, came and set up a stand in one of the main squares here to uh, sell his wares. Isn't that interesting? Spooky. 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 There's something in this guy's work, obviously. We need to check it out. Number three, uh, Sogyal. Sogyal and his crush on all women, especially when they're young, and his bad chat-up lines. I, do you want to rub my Buddha belly in my room, love? <sighs> oh, do you think that might get us into trouble? I think we're already in trouble with the cult episode, to be frank. <laughs> okay. It's all my fault. No, it's not. It's my parents' fault. <laughs> all right, number two. Andrew Cohen and his mummy, enough said. I'm sure that some of our readers got a lot of admiration for old Andy, but he's got a mummy complex. Anyway, number one, number one, I know you like this guy, Stuart, but he's the one I'll never forget. It's one of the first enlightened people I ever met. At number one, folks, the countdown is, is finished. John de Reuter and his mesmerizing gaze and his adorable sexy twins. Guaranteed. That's right. He's, Guaranteed. He's married. He's married to both of them. Then cheated. Yeah. Then cheated on them, and they both happen to be lawyers. Nice one, John. Not very bright, I'd say. Anyway, John's got a nice beard, a little bit similar to yours, actually, Stuart. No, not like mine. So not like mine. You could you could have a career in a New Age Guru worship if you wanted to put yourself on a pedestal. Oh wow, you're a really good career guidance counselor. Sexy twins thrown in for might, might, you know, might, not bad. Might have to look into that, mate. Might have to. All right, we should probably warn listeners as well um, about what to look out for in order to spot a fake enlightened dude. Here they are, top 10. See if any of the, the, the folks we've just mentioned have any of these characteristics. Number one, hypocritical. That's right, essential. Number two, can't take criticism. Number three, requires unquestioning devotion. Uh-oh. Mm. Number four, charges large sums of money or may just steal your wife, daughter, girlfriend, or even if they're a little bit different, your mum. Number five, uses fancy titles and claims to power, lineage, etc. We did have three Maitreyas on our list. Uh, number six, overly focused on the end goal. 
That's that perfect magical stuff we started off by talking about today. And of course, it's uh, an end goal that only he or she has obtained and some dead person or two. Seven, extremely unbalanced lifestyle, disconnection from the mundane. Number eight, selfish. Number nine, narcissistic. That's my favorite. Number 10, our teaching consists mainly of personal anecdotes, the story of me. And let's add one more, promises a quick path, solution the greatest, the best. You know what, Stuart, we forgot to mention one more character. Let's have an unhonorable mention, Eckhart Tolle. But just because he's got a chihuahua and has made million thanks to Oprah. Um, do you know how to spell chihuahua, Stuart? <laughs> I dare you. Ooh, uh, let's see now. C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A. Oh, you're, you're, you're enlightened. Only an enlightened person could spell that word. I know. It's, it's the truth. Yeah, it's the truth. You've got it. Mate, we've come to the end of quite a long episode today, but it was good. Was it good for you? I, I feel like I've relieved myself. Well, you know, that's the whole objective of, the, of this podcast. Uh, yeah, I feel pretty good. You know, we, we, we set out on, an, on a to challenge ourselves and I think we have I opened the box and on that taboo of, of what enlightenment is and now it's a it's a it's a tricky box to open because you open it and you go oh what's in here but there's a whole load of stuff in there there's a you know there's there's bits and pieces of well we got a bit of that a bit of this a lot of baggage yeah that's right what's essential what's not and uh what do we need to keep and what do we not need to keep and you know, that's, that was really specific, and uh, I'm, I'm very proud of myself right now. <laughs> I'm proud of you too, Stuart. I'm very proud of you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Just be aware, listeners, this, you know, this is experimentation. Feel free to make your contributions. Please do. If any of you have got any real opinions on any of this that doesn't really... Oh, I should, I should add a caveat. If you're going to come and quote scripture and your teachers don't bother, keep that to yourself. Um, if you've got some interesting personal exploration, creative, critical rethinking and jigging, do so. Let us know. The fact is we have two potential guests coming on. Uh, one is an old hat at this business, but we're going to try and come up with some interesting questions so that the, the discussion takes a very different line to the usual one. I've got an ambitious project to bring on a very interesting chap to talk about philosophical stuff. He's, he's much better equipped and his role uh, in relationship to Buddhism, he will be interesting if we get him on. If not, um, we'll get somebody else on. We're going to have two guests though, and, and two certainly will be lined up. Watch this space, send your criticisms in, and... Uh, if there are any uh, single women out there, twins in particular, looking for a very handsome date, Stuart is currently single, and I can highly recommend him. That's right. Pictures, please. Bye, folks. Take care. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov 
careers.